I have uh, Paul Seyfried standing on the line. He's the president of Utah Shelter Systems, and he's going to come on in just a moment and talk with us about underground shelters uh, rated for blast and nuclear, biological, or chemical issues. He's going to tell us a lot about uh, countries that are doing this on a large-scale operation have been doing so for a long time, countries like Switzerland, and a lot of other really neat, cool stuff and some threats that we tend not to think about anymore. Before we bring him on the line, though, let's go ahead and take care of our sponsors. They do a lot to help take care of you. Make sure the show is here for you five days a week, Monday through Friday. Sponsor of the day number one, Jeff the Berkey Guy at Directive21.com. Of your five survival needs, the one that you will die without the quickest in most situations is going to be water. And that means we need to make sure that we have good, healthy, clean drinking water at all times, both in good times and bad. I don't know a better way to do that than with the Berkey water filtration system. Even though they are a sponsor, when I recommend them, I'm making a recommendation based on what I really absolutely believe. In fact, if you come and look and see what water filtration do I personally use, it's a Berkey water filtration system. And it wasn't given to me. I purchased it because I believed in the product enough to buy one, and I dealt with Jeff at Directive 21. And you should, too, because not only are you going to get a great product, you're going to get great service from one of the largest distributors of Berkey in North America and one of the best places you could ever do business. Uh, period for anything or any time or place. Jeff always takes care of you, man. He really does a good job. He also has some other cool products for your prepping, prepping needs. Check out Directive21.com today uh, for Jeff the Berkey Guy. Next up today, Shelf Reliance. Notice I said shelf like something you put stuff on, not self like you yourself, your individual self, but a shelf. And that's because ShelfReliance.com are innovators in food storage technology uh, with some of the most innovative food storage shelves I've ever seen that allow you to eat what you store and store what you eat. Their Harvest 72, for example, can hold over 600 pounds of canned food in a very small footprint in a way that allows you to automatically rotate your food uh, no matter what type or size of cans you're using. So check out ShelfReliance.com today. And remember, they are also uh, where you can get the Thrive brand of long-term storage food. Uh, I'll tell you what. Uh, of all the long-term storage food, especially the stuff that's like prepped meals that you're just you know putting together and having a meal straight out of a can, best quality stuff I've ever seen. Best tasting stuff I've ever eaten. Really great pricing, and they ship a hell of a lot faster usually than things like Mountain House uh, or uh, or providing pantry and what have uh, in this day and age. So check out ShelfReliance.com. Uh, another sponsor, not sponsor of the day, but I want to make sure you guys don't miss your chance here. Ready-made resources, giving away that Rock River Arms 
AR-15 upper valued at about 900 bucks. All you do is fill out a form. Make sure you take a shot at winning that AR-15 upper. Robert went out of his way to make sure that he, uh, he put up a really great prize this time around. We don't give a lot of stuff away that's of that value. So uh, make sure you take a shot at winning the AR-15 upper. Next up today, remember to connect with me on Facebook, YouTube, and Twitter. The forum and the gear shop are also places you should check out. Uh, last but not least, do consider joining the Member Support Brigade. If you do that, you get exclusive content available only to members. And remember, law enforcement, military, or Peace Corps, active, active duty, or prior service. If you email me the details of your, where you were, where you served, or where you're currently serving, you know, your job, your, your, your years of service, whatever, just a little brief bio. Don't get too intricate with that. But just let me know. I'm actually dealing with somebody who served. I'll go ahead and give you a special discount code for the Member Support Brigade uh, that will apply to recurring as well. It's a permanent discount on the MSB. All right, folks, as I said during the uh, introduction segment, I have uh, Paul Seyfried on the, uh, on the line here. And uh, he's going to talk to us today about shelters, and it's something we don't really talk about a lot on the air. We probably should talk about them more. So I've got an expert here to discuss this with us. Uh, Paul is the uh, the president and CEO of Utah UtahShelterSystems.com. Uh, he built his first shelter back in 1985 together with a partner, Sharon Packer. They've built several hundred since, and they supply them to uh, private individuals and governments. They also market hatches and Swiss shelter components uh, for folks building their own shelters. And, you know, of course, shelters is his full-time business, and he's here to talk to us about them. Paul, welcome to the Survival Podcast. It's a pleasure to be on. Great. Um, you know, I, I, like I said, I don't really – haven't done a lot on shelters. I've done a little bit on burying shipping containers and some other things like that and thoughts on things like root cellars and all, which can kind of sort of be a shelter – but um, you know, just leading off, why should people be building a sh uh, you know a shelter now that the, the Cold War is over? Well, uh, it, it, I guess it depends on what your definition of the Cold War is. Uh, my definition of the Cold War is that we had a, an imminent threat of uh, invasion by the Warsaw Pact in Western Europe, and uh, those forces have largely you know dissolved. And uh, the countries that used to be in the Warsaw Pact are now mostly independent uh, and are friendly to the West. But uh, the these nuclear arsenals of both sides of the Cold War are still very much intact. And uh, Russia continues to modernize and upgrade their nuclear deterrent as well as Red China. Um, and, of course, there are other countries that are less stable that are joining the game, such as Iran and North Korea. And now Syria is also aspiring to a nuclear program. So the uh, nuclear genie is out of the bottle, and there are um, countries that are not friendly toward the United States um, that still possess or will soon possess the ability to deliver nuclear weapons into the United States. Okay, and I mean, part of, part of me looks at this and says that, you know, a shelter is not just for... Uh, nuclear warfare. It, it could be for anything from uh, other types of attacks. I guess we'll get into a little bit later, like uh, you know, biological or chemical. But it, it also would be a good place to shelter for you know people throughout the South that live in places but they don't even have a basement and they live in the middle of Tornado Alley. That's correct. Uh, we saw some horrific tornadoes this last season in Alabama and uh, Western Missouri uh, and Kansas, and uh, you know. It, um, I have a lot of customers who built their shelters for the nuclear biological chemical threat, 
but uh, they also take uh, comfort in having them when uh, there are tornadoes on the ground in their county. And, um, you know, they're, they're good for winter storms, massive power failures. You know, you're, when you won't be able to heat or cool your house, your shelter is still a standby uh, living arrangement where you can, you can live in some degree of comfort um, and safety. What makes a, a good shelter? What makes a shelter like, let's say, a proper shelter? What are some of the characteristics it needs to have? I mean, is it just a hole in the ground or a bunker? Or is there certain things that if you want to do it right, you really need to, uh, to kind of button down? Well, there are several things you need to address to build a shelter, and there are lots of ways to build one, depending on your resource uh, envelope. But uh, the first thing you need to consider is uh, the shielding factor. And uh, we run into a lot of people who build concrete box in the ground, uh, and they, when they call us later on when they're done to tell us you know, what they've done, uh, they have an 8-inch thick concrete ceiling, which is totally inadequate and will prove absolutely worthless in a nuclear environment. What you really need if you're going to stick with solely concrete uh, for your shielding material, is about 30 inches of concrete in the ceiling. And uh, that will provide uh, a very acceptable level of protection. Uh, shielding, uh, four feet of dirt uh, or more. We typically bury our shelters 10 feet deep in the ground, so there's 10 feet of cover over the top, which uh, would reduce you know, your nuclear exposure in an attack to near zero. Um, and, uh, of course, after shielding, uh, you have to look at proper ventilation. You have to be able to maintain a comfortable temperature in your shelter, and you do that primarily by air exchange. But you also need to be able to remove from the outside air uh, nuclear contaminants, and, of course, if chemical and biological agents are ever employed, uh, you'll need to be able to do that as well. Um, I forgot to mention a lot of our clients use these for fire shelters in California and other areas in the West uh, where they have housing developments in the mountains. Um, you know, the developer can say the cost of building 15 or 20 miles of road out of these mountain developments uh, as an alternate fire escape by deploying these uh, shelters underground near their their uh, houses. Uh, but anyway, um, so we need to have, you need to take into consideration enough room for the occupants. Uh, ventilation, um, we need to have a good uh, closure or a door on the shelter so that would uh, protect the occupants from, you know, the threat, obviously. Uh, and so that's basically it, shielding, ventilation. Um, of course, there are other considerations you could get by with just a flashlight or candle in your shelter, but we like to have a more realistic approach with uh, battery-powered backup systems for lighting uh, and so forth. Um, and then you can really get down to the nitty-gritty as far as meal preparation and uh, furniture and so forth. Uh, but uh, that's basically the essentials. So how do you handle how do you handle the air exchange? Like how do you you know is there any kind of electricity used in that? Is it a passive system? What type of filtering do you need to get something like anthrax or radioactivity out of air that we're going to be breathing? Because if we go down yeah. in that hole and we pipe in air that's not you know uh, filtered, you might as well be standing on the surface. You might as well be standing on the surface. You're absolutely correct. Um, we import a air handling system or ventilator from Switzerland because Switzerland is the world leader in civil defense technology, having more than enough shelters for their uh, entire population. Um, so we bring in the outside air, and it passes through a pre-filter, which strips out uh, dust particles larger than 10 microns. Uh, and then that uh, air goes into an NBC filter, which weighs about 175 pounds and sits on the floor. 
uh, and that uh, strips out all of your known chemical, biological uh, war gases and aerosols, and the Swiss actually test their filters against actual chemical and biological agents in the laboratory. Um, and then, of course, it's pulled through the air pump and dispersed into the shelter. Um, so, there's saw, a, so there's an electrical there's an electrical requirement there. Then this is it, not it, well. Actually, uh, we can run it on either 110 volt electricity or by hand. And the Swiss are wise enough to know uh. that uh, that you know in wartime electricity is a luxury. Yeah. And uh, but your but your shelter occupants still have to have breathable air. So even their very large ventilation systems in their shelters that hold thousands of people have 12-man crankshafts on them. Wow. And so if there's a hiccup with the generator, uh, they immediately select 12-man crews to go uh, turn these large crankshafts. And they have to turn about 30 revolutions per minute, so it's not a big deal. But uh, they have they have thought of that uh, situation. And uh, the 110-volt requirement uh, basically uh, is only about 3 amps. Okay. Uh, and so they, it is a fairly efficient... You know, from the standpoint of electrical energy consumption, it's a pretty efficient uh, air pump. But uh, the, the neat thing to notice on the uh, air handler is that the it's actually a pump rather than a blower, and it takes a lot of uh, vacuum power to pull the air through those filters and disperse it into the shelter. Um, I noticed a couple of a few years ago that uh, we had a four foot snowfall on our shelter in the mountains. And I considered clearing away the air pipe, but I thought, no, let's see, let's see if we get any air through four feet of snow. And of course, it effort, effortless, effortlessly, uh, pulled air through four feet of snow, and, uh, you could ventilate our shelter without any problem. Very cool, because you wouldn't want to go up there if there was fallout or something to clear the snow off. So, that, that's yeah, yeah, you, cool. you get the benefit of the snow to do that for you. Yeah, yeah. Um, so I heard you mention. Um, go, go ahead. ahead. No, go ahead. I heard you mention uh, burying shipping containers a while ago, and um, there is some of that on the internet. Some material on that. Um, I, I highly advise people to avoid doing that because all of the people that we have been talking to who have done that uh, have seen their their shipping containers ultimately collapse because they are not designed to sustain several hundred tons of dirt over the top of their flat roof. They are designed to be stacked one on top of the other with the load being taken up by the edges of the containers. But uh, burying them, you know, underground is not a good idea, so go, go some other route. Yeah, the only way I've ever seen that work is when they're fully timbered. Um, it, 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 we're, yeah. we're, they're not really doing the load bearing, the timbering, or uh, I've also seen people frame them out with I-beam steel and uh, and supports, right. like you're putting a mine yeah. staff in. And it's a lot of work. To, 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 it is. So all the savings seems to evaporate when they do that. Yeah. I've also uh, I've also seen people use a concrete slab you know, over the roof that extends several feet over both sides of the trench, and uh, that can work as well. But you have to address, you know, taking that load, that static load. So... Um, so anyway, that's why we went with the corrugated culvert pipe approach because uh, it's designed for deep burial. We actually can bury our shelters up to 44 feet deep. We've never done that. Wow. But uh, the, the culvert industry uh, allows for our particular gauge weight and uh, diameter to be buried 44 feet deep. We only go we only go 20 feet deep. Okay. Uh, 
So um, the culverts, the culvert shelter concept was tested by the U.S. government in the 1960s atmospheric nuclear weapons tests, and uh, they performed quite well, uh, surviving uh, within a few hundred yards of the crater edge of a ground burst and directly beneath any airburst nuclear weapon. And so that's why we we primarily stick with the uh, corrugated pipe. Cool. Very cool. Um, I also wanted to, and you mentioned something there, and when I got your notes uh, for the show, and then you mentioned it again here, it, I researched this and found out something I had no idea, and that is that this, you were mentioning the Swiss being the leaders in civil defense, but they're building, you know, hundreds and hundreds of shelters uh, monthly, and they keep building them. Uh, what yeah, is the reason for that? Well, uh, the Swiss correctly understand that they have, they take a long view in uh, their defense preparations, and they understand that peacetime is merely the intermission between wars. Uh, and that's the period where people pause and stand around and reload and get ready for the next war. Uh, Switzerland was the only country in Europe that was not involved in World Wars I and II. Uh, every, virtually every other country in Europe was uh, devastated by both wars. And uh, their policy of armed neutrality is, has served them well. And their philosophy is to avoid war, uh, you need to be prepared to make an invasion by an enemy too costly. The price of victory will be too high for someone to contemplate invading Switzerland. Uh, and that has worked well. So it, they just basically made uh, shelters a part of their defense program and a part of their federal building code. So any building intended for human habitation, whether it's a watch shop, grocery store, church, school, hospital, theater, you know, food store, they have to have a uh, blast-hardened NBC shelter on the premises to get an, occupa- an occupation permit. And uh, there is a way that you can get a waiver as a homeowner building a new home. You can get a waiver from the federal authorities if your family lives within five minutes of walking distance from a communal shelter. And uh, if you register your family at that particular communal bunker uh, with the authorities, then they will probably issue you a waiver and you don't have to build one in your house. Interesting. I mean, um, just kind of striking the difference between the U.S.'s policy on this and the Swiss policy on the Swiss state out of the war weren't building, you know, MX missile systems in the 80s and the 70s, um, not really considered the huge target. And then the U.S. were, you know, going toe-to-toe during the Cold War with the Soviets, both of us building huge stockpiles, were the target for the other guys. And, of course, they're the target for us. And we didn't really do anything on a national level as far as, uh, you know, shelter building. Why did well, our government choose not to? John F. Kennedy was the last U.S. president to actually be candid with the American people about the nature of the threat and appeared on our televisions and advised Americans to build fallout shelters if they had the means to do so. And uh, actually, uh, JFK was going to unveil uh, his concept of an American shelter program, which was very similar to the Swiss program. It was going to cost billions of dollars. Uh, And that died with John Kennedy in Dallas. Uh, Lyndon Johnson immediately scrapped the shelter program and accelerated our involvement in Southeast Asia and the rest of history. Uh, Ronald Reagan tried to revive civil defense in the 1980s, proposing to increase the federal 
uh, budget for civil defense from $200 million to $7 billion a year and begin building shelters. And, of course, he was mocked and savaged for that idea, and uh, that died. So, uh, basically, the American people are kept pretty much in the dark about uh, the nuclear and biological chemical threat. And, um, well, politicians figured out a long time ago that scared voters don't vote for incumbents. So if the electorate is kept ignorant and comfortable, then um, they continue to reelect people who don't pay any attention to the problem. And I see the problem now is that we have uh, been distracted by our adventures in the in the uh, Afghanistan and Iraq wars, and we have focused most of our resources and attention on the uh, the Islamic terrorist threat. And we have completely turned away from our near-peer rivals, communist China and Russia, of course. And um, so we're, we have totally neglected our nuclear deterrence. And uh, the Russians and Chinese continue to maintain and modernize their nuclear forces. Yeah, um, so we don't do it. The Swiss do do it. Are there any other countries that have, you know, heavy-duty uh, programs in place for uh, doing civil defense shelters? Uh, that's a good question, and the answer is yes. Um, South Korea has a large shelter program. Uh, Kuwait, Saudi Arabia now have large shelter programs since the uh, Iraqi invasion of Kuwait. Um, Sweden... Finland, Norway, all have large shelter programs. Um, Israel, of course, they, as we saw in the 2008 or 2006 uh, rocket campaign, uh, there were a lot of news stories filmed inside Israeli bunkers when uh, Katusha rockets were raining down on the Israelis. Um, Russia and China both have shelter programs. They tend to be focused on their critical industrial uh, areas. Uh, because they want to preserve their, obviously, their manufacturing base in case of war. Uh, but um, I, I, I seem to remember reading a story here not too long ago about the Olympics being held in Seoul, South Korea. And one of the athletes remarked that he was told when he arrived in, in uh, his hotel that if they did blow the air raid sirens for a drill, that you had a couple of minutes to get into a shelter. And if you were found wandering around, you know, within outside of that grace period, then you'd be arrested. So they, you know, some of these countries who have an eye toward protecting their populations uh, have spent a lot of money on civil defense shelters. Yeah, I mean, South Korea especially, the uh, the North there says that one day they'll turn it into a sea of fire, and even if you... Uh, even if you discount the, the, the little bit of nuclear uh, technology, it seems that the North has, uh, the conventional weaponry on something as small as the Korean Peninsula that's trained on the South now, you can see why they would want to do that. Oh, absolutely. Uh, North Korea is, is basically an um, armed camp, and they have an unbelievable amount of tube-type and missile artillery trained on the DMZ and in the Seoul area. Uh, and so South Korea does face a very serious threat, as does Israel and some of the other countries in, in the high-stress areas around the world. But uh, Switzerland just merely continues, you know, maintaining that, that standard, and um, they understand correctly that war is not uh, a thing of the past, that we will have more wars. Uh, not quite sure how they're going to unfold, but uh, war will be with us for quite some time. 
and uh, they they understand that peacetime is the best time to prepare for that. Yeah, um, makes me think of something. My uh, my friend, who actually was a, a a member of the Soviet military, named Valery Asanov, used to say that they said all the time is those who sweat the most in peace bleed the least in war. Uh, yeah. And I think there's a lot to be said for that. But I also, you know, I know him because, you know, he was actually he was actually a member of the KGB and he left Russia after the Soviet Union uh, collapsed. And uh-huh. that kind of brings us to another subject uh, that you had sent me some information on. And that's like, you know, we watched the Soviet Union collapse and we said, OK, great. The big threat's gone. Ignoring China sitting right there and nothing changed there. Um, but in some ways, maybe it did reduce the direct threat of nuclear war on some levels, but at the same time, it decentralized a lot of things. Val told me he left and went to and, 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 uh, you know went to London because basically, since he was ex KGB, he had two choices: join the Russian mafia or leave, because no one else would have you. So a lot of people like left Russia like that, like including this one guy you sent me uh, an article about uh, that made like some of the most advanced anthrax ever made. Mm-hmm. And that's a that's a new threat that I don't think people really understand how big the uh, the biological side of the threat is. Well, you're correct, and uh, biologicals kind of reared its ugly head right after the 9/11 uh, thing in the uh, Ames anthrax case, uh, which turns out somebody at one of the labs, I think Fort Detrick. Um, had some kind of political agenda and was uh, manufacturing his own weapons-grade anthrax and circulating it in the mail. But uh, that that did get you know some press time and people became a little concerned about that. And then it you know when we figured out what was going on, it faded away. But uh, Russia, I believe, still maintains a biological weapons program, and uh, most of our adversary nations continue uh, because they're cheap. And they are devastatingly effective, and they don't break any windows. So um, I remember attending a lecture by the late Conrad Chester from the Oak Ridge National Laboratory, who uh, made a slide presentation to uh, the American Civil Defense Association just before he passed away. And uh, he had a he had a, a slide up on his um, up on the screen, which showed the um, the cost of depopulating or killing um, a one-square-mile area with various kinds of weapons. And the most expensive one was airstrikes, which had a cost of about $12 million per square mile. And the next most expensive was uh, artillery, at about $10 million per square mile. And then we dropped down to nuclear explosives, which was about $2 million per square mile. And at the bottom of the chart was anthrax, that cost $40. Wow, so 40 bucks, the neat huh? thing about anthrax is that you can disperse it over a wide area, and you know if if we deploy it by an aircraft such as a long-range bomber, it carry tons of it, literally. Um, they can they can fly, you know, patterns across the United States at night and uh, disperse this agent at about two uh, two pounds per linear mile, and as those aerosols drift with the wind, they can. Um, create a lot of casualties up to 400 miles downwind. That's a large area for one platform to uh, totally depopulate. It and, doesn't uh, require any it doesn't require any precision delivery either. No. It's it's, no. it's its own smart bomb because it's everywhere. Yes. Um, the neat thing about anthrax from the standpoint of the user is that the next day when the sun comes out, 
sunlight degrades anthrax um, pretty rapidly. So a day or two of complete sunshine would probably deactivate any agent that is exposed to the sun. Of course, that doesn't count anything that drifted into buildings, carpet, clothing, attics, air systems, and so forth. But um, it, 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 it doesn't, it's not transmissible from one person to another. So you can largely control the borders of an anthrax, the using anthrax on a big population. But if you release something like smallpox, that hops from one person to another extremely readily. And uh, that would be a weapon that would, you know, keep on infecting long, long, long after it was dispersed. And I don't think anybody would use smallpox unless they're total idiots. Uh, unless the United States were completely shut down after a nuclear strike, where maritime uh, and civil air traffic has largely ceased. Uh, but uh, nonetheless, we have, you know, some some nasty minds out there who have considerable resources to develop and build and deploy nuclear weapons, uh, biological aerosols, and that's a pretty scary thought in itself. Oh, it absolutely is. It's, it's actually, to me, more more likely to occur than something like a nuclear strike. Nuclear weapons are expensive to build. They require a lot of technology, and generally they're in the hands of government. And I, I don't agree with a lot of things that George Bush Jr. said. I don't really like any politician, but one thing he said that made a lot of sense to me with nuclear weapons, he said, I'm not really that concerned with the country that wants a thousand of them. I'm concerned with the person that wants one. Um, so I think yeah. our biggest threat is that individual weapon there. But um, like you said, anthrax, you can wipe out a square mile with 40 bucks. Uh, I've heard a lot of people in the defense industry call bio and chemical weapons the poor man's nuclear bomb. It is. And in fact, um, they may be even more devastating from the casualty standpoint uh, than nuclear weapons if they're used by somebody who knows what they're doing. The other uh, specter, going back to proliferation, is uh, we have Pakistan, who has a pretty modern nuclear program. They understand how to build multi-stage weapons, uh, you know, fission-fusion weapons and so forth. They understand miniature, miniaturization of weapons, and uh, they've tested a, a nuclear, I'm sorry, a thermonuclear weapon. Um, and uh, the problem I see with Pakistan is we don't really know who in their program is likely to siphon off or, you know, lose or sell a weapon to a rogue terrorist nation or, or group. And I don't, worry, I don't worry so much about, um, you know, one being smuggled into a city, although that would be terrible. What I worry about most is sending that weapon to a country like Iran, who has a mature intermediate-range ballistic missile program, and uh, Iran is looking for a nuclear weapon to put on their one of their intermediate-range ballistic missiles and possibly launch that from a ship in the Gulf of Mexico over the central part of the U.S. and do what's called an EMP shot. I'm sorry I have a Sikorsky helicopter flying overhead here. Um, so if someone were to successfully detonate a nuclear weapon over the central part of the United States at the right altitude, we would be a third world country in in a, in a minute, and uh, it wouldn't hurt anyone on the ground initially, but it would completely shut down our electrical infrastructure and and basically destroy all unprotected uh, microcircuits, chips, and so forth. And uh, we are totally dependent on this technology to provide 
drinking water uh, and other utilities and fuel and food and medical support and all the other things critical to, you know, keeping our population alive. And uh, with, with a single warhead, a country, a tiny country like Iran or North Korea could successfully destroy the United States uh, as a viable power. Yeah, and I think if they were to maybe use half a dozen of them spread out, they could they could really make sure they got the job done. And that doesn't seem like that big of a task for them to accomplish. Well, um, it's a proven fact that uh, a single low-yield nuclear weapon, if designed properly, uh, and the blueprints are readily available on the Internet, uh, but there are enhanced EMP weapons, to, and they're... Um, they're projected to be able to do a 100% EMP laydown on the entire continental United States. Wow. And that is certainly well within the, uh, the heavy lift capability of the Shahab 3 and uh, its variants. And there's another new uh, intermediate-range ballistic missile in use by Iran that uh, could lift an even larger weapon. And uh, the, the, the bad thing about what makes this more viable is that uh, if the launching party destroyed the ship that they launched from, there would be absolutely no chance of figuring out who launched the missile. Who did it. And so the whole concept of mutual assured destruction is dead because you don't go burning down, you know, uh, 200 million people in another country or 50 million people in another country on a suspicion. You have to know who did it. And we probably wouldn't even retaliate anyway because, you know, there's 200 million people really isn't the problem. It's the leadership. Sure. And uh, so we probably wouldn't retaliate in any case. But uh, the fact is, is the uh, experts are projecting if we did suffer an EMP strike, that it would eliminate about 90% of the U.S. population over a one-year period. Wow. Wow. All right, so let's say you know I'm sold on the idea. I decide I want to build a shelter for myself and my family. Typical, you know, American family of four. What type of size are they going to need in general? What's going to be the expense, the cost of doing this? I know that varies because you know one guy has like really easy soil to dig in, the other guy's loaded with rocks and boulders. But you know, kind of a general ballpark. Well. Um you know, I often get asked the question, how many people can fit in a certain size shelter? And the answer is, it depends on how scared they are. Um, <laughs> the most popular, yeah, I actually talked to a woman who lived in Germany. She spent her eighth birthday in a Berlin bomb shelter and um, said they were packed in there so tightly that they literally fell asleep standing up and uh, spent the entire night listening to the air raid uh, from her bunker. But, uh, you know, you do what you have to do to stay alive. And... Uh, now, size-wise, uh, our most popular size is the 10 by 50, 10-foot diameter tube with a 50-foot length. And then, uh, the reason is because it's the cheapest uh, per square foot cost that we can make because the fixed costs on building the shelter are the steel bulkheads on the end and the entrances and the ladder and the air handler and the hatches or the Swiss doors, depending on how you're doing it. And so all these costs are the same, no matter how long you make the shelter. The cheapest part is the length. And so the smallest, there's only about a $13,000 spread between the smallest shelter we make to the largest shelter we make. So from the standpoint of 
of storing extra food, water, soap, antibiotic, medical supplies, tools, clothes, shoes, you know, whatever. Um, whatever you are able to pack into that shelter is most likely what you'll get to live on for an extended period of time because the supply chain will be largely destroyed. And I mean, so, what, what, so the larger shelter we build runs around sixty thousand dollars. Okay. And that's the shipping cost. That's the ship, you know, the driveway cost. And then uh, insulation runs anywhere from eight thousand dollars to twenty thousand dollars, depending on how sophisticated your installation is and the job site and whether you have to blast, you know, local conditions, how far you have to go to get crushed rock and so forth. But um, that's that's the ballpark figure of the cost of a shelter. And our target when we got into this was to build a highly efficient, high-protection shelter for about the cost of a new, well-equipped pickup truck. And... Um, if you go down to your Ford dealer and price a crew cab diesel pickup truck, uh, they run about $58,000 or more, depending on what, sure. what options you order. Sure. So you're not that far off. And it, but it, it isn't something that everybody's going to just run out tomorrow and throw on the beast card and be able to buy. But if you have the means, I can see the, the reason to do so. Well, there are a lot of people that um, are in my income bracket. I'm kind of a low-to-middle income guy, and um, they get two or three other families together, and they pool their resources, and they have a common piece of ground, and uh, they all chip in about a third, and so that brings it down to about $20,000. Which makes a lot more sense for the average person to be able to it get. It does, and you get the added advantage of having the skill sets of the additional people involved in your project. So maybe someone in another family is a nurse or a dentist uh, or an engineer or you know, uh, former military. So you have you have the opportunity to bring more skills into your into your readiness project. Absolutely. Um, what are some? You, you've mentioned that you do supply materials for people that are building their own shelters. What are some of the approaches you've seen taken there that have actually worked and been worth doing? Well, we work with a lot of customers who have very generous resources, and they build concrete shelters. And concrete is a good material, provided you use enough of it, and um, it's designed properly. Um, one of the most popular items that we provide is the Swiss Armored Doors, which basically is a uh, door frame and a door leaf that is filled with concrete. It has uh, two curtains of rebar on it on the four-inch centers. And uh, the door is designed to be cast into the concrete wall when you're building the shelter. And uh, after two weeks of cure time, then you can form up the door leaf, which rests on the outside of the door frame. It does not recess into the door frame. I'll get to that in a second. But uh, later on, the door leaf is formed up, it's closed, and concrete is poured through the fill holes in the top of the leaf. And after three days, you can strip the forms off the leaf and you have a Swiss glass door. Um, I see some people using cast-in security vault doors, and they work great for gun safes and valuables, but those doors are not designed for structures that could be exposed to blast effects because if the door frame were to be distorted in any way, then you cannot open the door. And that's why the Swiss armored door has the door leaf locked on, or positioned on the outside of the door frame, bearing against the frame and the wall, 
so that if the even if the frame were to be severely distorted, you can still easily open the door and self-rescue. Yeah, so you don't get stuck in your shelter. Is it your shelter doesn't become a tomb? That would become a tomb, and that's not the undesired result. <laughs> yeah, there's cheaper ways to bury yourself after you're gone than in a, in a sixty thousand yeah. dollar blast shelter. Yeah. A, a thing I've seen people do to build, um, mostly more for a storm shelter type situation, but seems to have worked fairly well. You mentioned you use the corrugated pipe in your in your your shelters, but I've seen at times where there's major civil works projects where they're putting in that huge concrete pipe and yeah, uh, they have some left over. And it's, if you buy it new, it's expensive. But when they have some left over, you can usually get it dirt cheap, uh, sure. comparatively uh, speaking. Concrete, and that would seem to work really well. As for, yeah, concrete pipe is very rugged. And, in fact, the Swiss use uh, concrete pipe in some of their um, military uh, small field fortifications. Uh, yeah, I have no problem with concrete pipe. Very rugged stuff. Cool. Well, if, if folks want to talk to you about uh, putting in a shelter, how do they get in touch with you? Well, um, we have a website, and it's called utahsheltersystems.com, and uh, our contact information is on there. I can be reached directly by email. It's P-S-E-Y-F-R-I-E-D at utahsheltersystems.com. That's all on the website. And I can um, I take calls on my cell phone, which is uh, 801-631-7684. And uh, we do provide a lot of self-help to people who are doing their own, and if they just need information, we're happy to provide things like the Swiss building code for concrete shelters and uh, maybe help people tweak their own you know, building plans and so forth, help them avoid some of the pitfalls we've already seen. And um, But we're just more into promoting the general uh, readiness for the American people, and we are quite vulnerable to a lot of threats. And when you guys when you guys do your installations, are you geographically limited to like an area that you cover, or we mostly uh, cover the United States and Canada? Okay, so you but you're nationwide. Yes. Okay. So you don't have to live in Utah to get a shelter, no. Utah Shelter Systems. That's no, I want to make that's sure people understand. Our shelters, you can ship it by truck virtually anywhere. Oh, I'm not really wild about Florida because their water table is extraordinarily high. Yeah. yeah. That's a limitation for our shelters. They cannot go into the water table. Oh, that's, um, that's interesting. But in many other areas of the country, they, they have appropriate conditions and uh, they work really well. Very, very cool. Well, Paul, I appreciate you being with us today on the Survival Podcast and uh, opening up our eyes, I think, to some threats that people tend to overlook. Hey, I believe so. Uh, well, folks, today it's been uh, Jack Spearfield along with Paul Seyfried helping you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough or even if they don't. There's nothing I can do It's the price we pay, I guess We follow all the rules There's a better way to do this Let me show you a better way You 
Yeah.